Good morning, City Light Church. It's good to see you all this morning. My name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We've been walking every morning since about mid-January, every Sunday, uh, through the Gospel of John. And um, it's it's been a a long road, and it it might seem really long to everybody, right, that we've been walking section by section through the Gospel of John. But I want to tell you something. We do that on purpose. We walk through the book like that on purpose because uh, we want to keep ourselves accountable uh, as pastors and as elders of the church. We want to hold ourselves accountable to not come and preach what we're comfortable with, but what God actually says. And so as we've been walking through that, we've actually had the opportunity to do that. Last week, Ricky had the gracious opportunity and with great pleasure preached on persecution. I mean, that's not a fun subject matter, right? Like nobody says, hey, you know, let's preach on... Persecution. That sounds like a, a good way to start uh, my preaching time at City Light. So uh, that's not a topic. That's not something we would choose. But man, God put that in the Bible. He put that in the text for us to glean wisdom and, and knowledge from him. And so that, that's why we do that. And, and so my hope is that as we've walked through this series, is that, that we've been able to see God more clearly, like that he has displayed Jesus more and more clearly to our hearts so that we might have the opportunity to glean God's wisdom and, and that his wisdom might might transform our hearts as we continue to walk through his word in that way. And so th- that's, that's what this book's about, right? Like the, the, the Bible, and especially the book of John, it wants to, it, it, it's, it's revealing God more and more to us, and, and, and it wants to reveal the person of Jesus more and more to us, right? So that we might believe in him, that we might trust in him, and become more like him. And so as we walk through that, I want to I wanna invite you right now to open your Bibles to John chapter 16. And... Uh, it, what I want you to remember is that in John chapter 16, we're a a part of this series where it's a conversation between Jesus and his dudes, the disciples. Um, This is like the last talk that they're going to have before he dies. And so what he's doing, he's he's trying to give them all of this wisdom and information in this one conversation before he goes. So these are his last words to them. And he's wanting to speak these very words before they encounter some of the most miserable, sorrowful pain that they're going to experience in their hearts from his death, right? And so that's what's coming, but, but Jesus also wants to show them that the end of his story isn't his death, is it? Uh, death doesn't get the last word here. Um, and, and so about a little over nine years ago, I faced some similar pain and sorrow in my heart. Um, I faced some similar pain and sorrow because uh, my previous wife had passed away. Uh, She was the one who led me to know Jesus. She was the one who uh, introduced me to the first love of my life, Jesus. And and then unexpectedly, she passed away in a car accident. And so in the midst of that, in my sorrow, in my pain, I had some options to choose from on how I was going to respond to that, right? And and let's be honest, I didn't actually choose any options. I kind of did all of it. I walked into the situation and tried to process through my pain by basically distancing myself from God. I said, you know what? I don't know if being close to him right now is is what's best for me. And so as I'm walking through this pain and this sorrow, I created some distance. I didn't trust God for a time period because I didn't like pain. And I felt like maybe he was the cause of that pain. And then I also uh, went toward uh, earthly things that might cause some pleasure to kind of dampen that pain. So I, I went to like making money as my, my goal or relationships as my goal. And I found myself in the position of possibly making some decisions that I would regret for the rest of my life. That's how I processed through that pain from a, just a very natural perspective. And, and I think that's, that's probably how most of us 
kind of react to that. Like some of us, we, we have this temptation to approach sorrow or pain in that way, to, to go to uh, our, basically when we, are, we, we get sorrow and pain from our circumstances, that's basically how we approach that. And, and I think we find ourselves doing that because we're finding our utmost joy in those circumstances. So when things don't go right, we respond in this way. So I think we have choice to, to respond in probably one of three ways. First, um, if our circumstances aren't going the way we like them to go, we're just mad at God. We're blaming him because it's his fault that it's worked out this way. I think the second one is that we try to change that circumstance trying to find more comfort. So we try to just move on from it or do something different with it. And then thirdly, I, I think we just ignore it. Like we try to pretend like nothing's going on. There is no mess in my life. Everything's fine. And so that's how we normally respond to it. But what Jesus wants to do with us this morning, he wants to show us a better way. He wants to give us an opportunity to respond differently to those circumstances. He's he's telling his disciples right before they face the greatest sorrow of their life, their Lord dying, he wants to share, man, here's here's the way to to work through that sorrow. Here's what I'm actually going to do for you in the midst of that. And so John 16 is Jesus showing that sorrow doesn't have the final word. He, he, he doesn't let sorrow win the day. What he does is he takes sorrow and repurposes it into joy. He repurposes sorrow into joy. And what I, what I mean by repurpose, what I mean is, is it's taking one thing that was meant for one purpose and using it for a completely different one. And so Jesus is showing us that, that our joy cannot be found in our circumstances, but only in his ability to make good on his word. And so my first point this morning is the provision of joy. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And a little while again, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by a little while and you will see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So Jesus' disciples are sitting there as he's having this conversation. He's reminding them of what he started out the conversation with, like, hey, I'm leaving, I'm going. And their first thought is probably the most practical one, right? What does he mean by a little while? Like, that's the question I would ask. I don't know about you. I'm like, okay, you're saying pain's coming. Things are going to get difficult. When are you coming back? What is a little while to you? And so they're trying to gain some perspective, and I get it. And so when they come to Jesus and do this, he does exactly what he always does, right? He, he doesn't answer their question specifically, but instead, he gives them exactly what they needed to hear in the moment. He, he doesn't tell them, hey, your circumstances are going to change. No, he explains to them, hey, you will weep. You will lament. That you will experience a great sorrow while everyone else is celebrating. And this is important because in the midst of our sorrows, in the midst of our pains, 
time seems to be fairly irrelevant, right? Like they don't really need to know how long it is because honestly, a half hour it may seem like several hours or a, a, a short season may seem like forever when you're going through pain and sorrow. So instead of telling them how long a little while is, he tells them what the outcome of their sorrow will be. That's what they needed to hear. And, and so they also in this moment could have been thinking though, man, if he tells us how long this is or, or, or what this might look like, I might be able to muscle through it, right? So that's how some of us think. We think, man, if, if I knew how long my sorrow would last or if I knew exactly how this was going to go, then, then I don't need to trust Jesus in this moment. I can grit it out. I can white knuckle this thing until it's all over, right? But what Jesus is doing, he's pressing in and saying, no, 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 no. I don't want you to look to other things or yourself to, to fight sorrow, but I want, I want you to come to me. And so in the midst of our sorrow, man, it forces us to a place of looking toward him. And so the time frame or the desire to change the circumstance isn't the important point here. The important point is that their sorrow will be turned into joy. It'll be repurposed for their joy. And so before I go there, I want to point out something. Okay, before I go there, I want to point out something. Listen for one second. When you know somebody that's going through pain or sorrow, I know we have this temptation to walk up to them and say, hey, man, just rejoice. Just just get over it. Like, like God is good. It's going to be okay. Let it be easy, okay? Like, just just let it go. Because that sorrow, it's not a thing that you should have right now. Like, don't do that. (laughs) that. That's not what people need in that moment. They don't need you to come and tell them that it'll be okay. We don't need people to come and tell us, hey, it's going to be okay. What we need in that moment, in the midst of our sorrow, we need presence. We need someone to be there, to empathize with us, to to hold our hand, to hug us, to to cry with us. So please don't jump in with good advice, but with just the presence of your body next to a person. Guys in the room, when your wife says, hey, she has a problem, we're fixers, and so we want to just jump in and fix it. Don't do that. Don't let your lead foot be, hey, here's some good advice. Here's how I can fix your problem so we can move on from this thing. It's basically distancing ourselves. What we should do is listen. Let our wives or the people that are experiencing sorrow know that, hey, I'm with you. I'm for you. Don't just brush it off as if, well, we're not going to deal with this right now. Consider it an honor to be with them to be for them in that moment. Romans 12, 15 actually goes on to say, say that like our call as people of God are actually to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. If you look at the book of Job, who's probably experienced more sorrow than any person in the room possibly, when you look at the book of Job, we usually give a lot of flack to his friends, right, and how they respond to him. But what we don't notice is that they spent seven days in silence with Job, with their friend. And then, it, and then the, the first 37 chapters of this book, it goes on and on and on and basically loops itself into the same conversation. And, and, I, and, and honestly, I, I've read it and gotten a little bored about, with that, right? But, but I think what God's doing in that moment is he's showing that sorrow isn't something that you just, and it's gone, but it's a process. It takes time. Everybody deals with it differently. And so when Jesus is having this conversation with them, He knows in his mind that, hey, the sorrow that he's referring to is only going to last three days. He knows it's only going to last 72 hours of sorrow, but yet Jesus in this moment says, I care about that sorrow. I care about your sorrow. Jesus is saying to you this morning that he cares about your sorrows. 
I don't know what some of you brought in the room this morning, what cares or struggles that you have, but Jesus is saying, hey, I I care for that. I'm with you in the midst of that. He cares the fact that you may have been crying for the last day, weeks, or even months. He cares so deeply about that that he he wants to encounter you right now. He cares that your life is hard in this moment. And today he wants to tell us where our joy can be found and what he uses to provide that joy. So in verse 20, Jesus tells his disciple, their sorrows will turn into joy. Here's, here's what he didn't say. He didn't say, I'm going to take your sorrow and change the circumstance so then you can have joy. No, what he said is, your sorrow will turn, basically be transformed into joy. He's not going to sub out sorrow for joy. What he's going to do is transform it into joy. So how's that possible? How is he going to take our pain, our sorrow, our loss, our grief, and transform it into joy? Well, first we have to define what joy is, right? Like joy is not happiness, actually. Like the way we typically think of joy is happiness. Happiness is temporary. Joy is eternal. Happiness is based on the world's circumstances. Joy is based on the Lord. And so what joy is, is it's, it's being able to delight in Jesus, delight in his love, and feel this closeness to him and this confidence in him in the midst of our circumstances, even if they don't look like you should experience joy through them, he's right there with you because joy is found in him and not the circumstance. And so when we typically think of that, we usually do tie it to a circumstance, right? Like if I'm joyful, that means something's going well for me right now. But here's what's hard about that. Everyone in the room, your life ebbs and flows in this chaotic rhythm of change and, and choices, right? And so as it's ebbing and flowing with changes and circumstances, so basically you have a new baby and then that new baby doesn't sleep ever or somebody hurts you or somebody causes you pain or, or you lose a job or you get a job, you move, you change houses, people die, people get sick, So we're always in this constant, fragile state of life that if our joy is based or defined by our circumstances, we're only a phone call, a knock at the door, a dollar short from all of our joy just passing away. And I don't want to belittle those things because they do very much cause sorrow. But Jesus wants to show us where our true joy can be found and how he takes sorrow and repurposes it for our joy. In verse 21, he uses the illustration of a woman giving birth to a baby. Now, I have never had a baby, okay? I've never given birth. It's just not possible. I don't do those things. However, I have gotten the opportunity to watch it take place. I've gotten the opportunity to experience it take place. And it was a crazy ordeal. I got to watch my wife have our three little ones. And, and what, seemed like five, what seemed like a whole day and a night was only about five hours. And I watched my wife, Colleen, experience some of the most intense pain she's ever experienced in her life. And after three of those little ones were born, she did a, a really cool thing. She wrote a letter to them giving an account of the day they came into the world. And so what I want to do, I want to share some of that with you, uh, an excerpt from the letter that was written to my oldest daughter, Evangeline. And here's what it says. At this point, con- contractions were getting more painful. I was not able to carry on conversations with Mo while I was having a contraction And I had to really focus on breathing through the contractions in order to deal with the pain. 
Very quickly, contractions became very intense. I was squeezing Mo's hand to help deal with the pain, and after a couple of these very difficult contractions, I suggested that we call the nurse back into the, into the room and let her know that pain had increased significantly. When she came back in, she realized that I was ready to deliver. She called our doctor to let him know that I was ready to deliver, and he asked that she would call him again after I was done practicing pushing. Okay. He said that he would, he would be with us in a few minutes. We continued to try to get through the contractions without pushing too hard. The nurse and Mo helped me focus on breathing and, and on the mini pushes. After the longest 15 minutes I have ever endured, I saw our doctor walk through the doors. I felt so relieved to finally see him because I knew it was time to get the baby out. Our doctor coached me through three or four more contractions and instructed me on how to push hard. Mo was watching the whole thing and being an excellent coach. Just, just putting out. Nah. Uh, and pretty soon, <laughs> and pretty soon, I was told that your head was almost out. When you finally came out, the doctor handed you to me, and I cried. She is a she, because our nurse had been referring to you as she was during our labor as a she. The doctor asked, what's her name? And tearfully, I responded, Evangeline. As I held you and cried, I looked at Mo and we both praised God for our miracle. I remember saying, oh my God, when she was handed to me because I was in awe of what he had created. I barely remember the extra push I had to to do and I don't remember anything else that was being done to me because I was so enthralled with you. You see, the joy of bringing my daughter into this world made us forget about the tears and the pain that my wife experienced. Because our tears that we had of pain were transformed, were repurposed into joy in those moments. I have some pictures that I want to post up on the screen just to show you the reality of this, um, of, of that circumstance. You can see the pain and then you can see the tears of joy on my wife's face because we just had our baby. Can you flip to the next one? You see that? That's the transformation that God wants to do in the midst of our sorrow. He wants to show us this this great, this deep love and joy in the midst of pain and and even just taking it and transforming it, repurposing it into joy. That was a picture of of my first daughter, or my my second daughter's birth. I don't know how many kids I have, but uh, (laughs) um, that was just a picture of that, right? But, But here... Our hearts were so filled with awe and amazement when they were born. But can I say something? It doesn't compare to the immensity of the joy that's found in Jesus. It doesn't. He loves me and you so deeply, so passionately that he endured pain beyond pains in his death he, he took on the cross for yours and my sin. He exchanged his perfect holy life for yours and mine. There is no joy. There is no greater gift than that. I promise you, there is no greater life than you, what you can find in Jesus. That's where the joy comes from. I think he uses this illustration as a, as a shadow of what he's talking about here. In Genesis 3.16, God tells Eve that because of her sin, she will endure pain through childbirth. Because what happens is Satan comes in and, and, and he, he convinces Eve that he sh- she should sin against God. And so in her sin, the consequence was pain in childbirth. 
But like Eve and my wife, the pain of childbirth was repurposed. God repurposed it into new life. God's showing us that he's in control no matter what the enemy is doing. The pain of judgment actually ends up leading to salvation. What Satan meant for evil, God repurposed into good. And that's ultimately displayed in the person, the work of Jesus on the cross. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. That's what he's telling us today is that, man, the weapon that's intended for death, God took that and repurposed it to give life, to give salvation, to ultimately defeat death altogether. Jesus' death on the cross was payment for our sin, but in a little bit after his death, he resurrected, right? And when he resurrected, he, he defeated death. So when the disciples would see Jesus again, they would be filled with great awe and joy, not because he changed the circumstances, but he took this excruciating sorrow and pain that it caused them and repurposed it for joy because their king had given them true life and salvation. We might see our losses, our sorrows as defeats, as things that tear us down. And, and, and sometimes we might naturally lean toward the natural and say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to basically focus all on my money and making money to make, my, make up my circumstances change. I'm going to focus on, on sex or, or, or alcohol or, or vacations or shopping or whatever it is, on and on and on and on. These are all temporary joys. But only Jesus can turn our deep sorrow into deep joy. Those temporary pleasures are superficial. Jesus tells his disciples and tells us in verse 22 that the joy that can't be taken away, the joy that isn't temporary, is only found in him. He cares about our sorrow so much that he turns them into joy by us turning to him. Let me say that again. He cares so much about our sorrows that he takes those sorrows and turns them into joy by us turning to him. No sorrow can crush the joy that we have. No sorrow can crush the joy that we have in receiving God and his loving relationship through his son. This relationship that we have with God, that we get to have with God, actually expands well beyond the time of any sorrow or any pain that we might experience. That's a relationship of just direct communion with the Father. Jesus provides great and utter joy in himself. And so my first point is that the provision of joy is found in Jesus. My second point is the practice of prayer. We're going to pick it up in verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father." So the practice of prayer. So Jesus follows up when he reveals the joy that they can find in him. He follows that up with the benefits of that joy, a relationship with the Father God. He says, what you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. So he says, so what does he mean by in my name, in his name? How many of us, when we pray, we make sure we say in Jesus' name at the end? 
I'm the only one? Okay, that's cool. Um, no, no, we, we do that. Have you, have you ever asked yourself, though, why do you say that? Why, why do we say, in Jesus' name? Most of us in the room probably don't know why, right? It's, it's kind of just this routine for us. Like, we bow our head or we get on our knees and, and we start praying and, and we ask God to solve our problems, fix our finances, and, and we, give, we come to him with our proverbial wish list of things that we want him to do, and then at the end of it, we slap a Jesus sticker at the end of it, Right? That, that's what it looks like, right? That's what our prayer life looks like. And so, so here's what it means by praying in the name of Jesus. What it means is that when we pray, it is in alignment with Jesus's heart. It is in alignment with Jesus's heart. It's not to say that the phrase, to, to just simply say the phrase in Jesus' name necessarily, but, it, but it's actually to pray with a, a posture and a heart that is directed toward Jesus, that is directed toward God the Father in, in such a way that it aligns with Jesus's heart. Asking God in Jesus' name is admitting that the only way that we get to speak to God is through the grace of Jesus. Simply put, we pray in Jesus' name because there's no other way to talk to God in the first place. We need the gospel. We need Jesus to approach the throne of grace. We need Jesus to be our substitute in the midst of our prayer because Jesus took our sorrow of the cross and repurposed it for joy and salvation so that we might have a relationship with God the Father. It is by his name that we get to talk to God. In verse 27, he says that the Father himself loves you because you love me and believe I come from God. Jesus is saying that when sorrow is repurposed, transformed, turned into joy, when you've seen the victory of the cross, when you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, God, you get God as a loving father of your life. He cares about you. He loves you. And if all of that is true, if he truly cares for you and truly loves you, man, he's, he's willing to do whatever it takes for your good. Matthew seven eleven says it this way. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Wow. What a wonderful gift that he would give us, that he would love us that much. But here's the issue. I think that some of us at times when we pray, we don't think he's actually hearing us, or at least that he's actually going to answer our prayers. A pastor in New York, his name's Tim Keller, I I think he explains this situation for us really well. He says, God will give you what you pray for or give you exactly what you would have prayed for had you known what he knows. Had you known what he knows. I think when we pray, some of us don't really believe that he cares or is listening. Like if we did believe that, if we did believe that he cares and that he listens and he loves us, we would probably do this prayer thing. We would practice it differently. We would probably do it more frequently. We wouldn't necessarily verbalize it this way, but I I don't think we believe that he, he cares or understands what's going on in the here and now of my life. And what that does, it produces in me, especially, a, a pride that says, you know what? I'm just going to do it on my own. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that I do this life thing on my own. I'm going to do it on my own terms because I think that I'm alone. And we also think that we know better, right? That if God truly loved me, then he would do it this way. Or if God really knew what was going on and really cared about my struggles, he would do it my way, right? And it's like, Really? Really, that's, that's what our heart thinks. 
If we aren't looking to God the Father for direction and wisdom, we're actually getting guidance from someone who has a very small picture of reality, ourselves. Please hear me when I say this. Don't let the grace of being able to speak to God the Father be just another religious activity that you go through. Don't let it just be another religious activity that you do. What's the posture of your heart when you approach God in prayer? What's that look like for you? I know what it looks like for me. One of our interns said this is a new word for him, so I'm trying to help him out. Perfunctory is how I approach it. And basically what that means is that I approach him with very little effort or care in what I'm doing. I just carry on with this casual thing as if I'm not talking to God. I'm not talking to the God who loves me, who cares for me, who's given his son for me, the father who has given his, his love to me. He breathed life into me. That's not who I, who I think I'm talking to when I pray. I talk to him like he's my buddy, like he's really probably not listening or really caring that much about what's going on. Instead of seeing him for the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the heavenly father who loves me so deeply when I pray to him. So the challenge for us is, is, is to pray in Jesus' name, which means to align our hearts with God's heart and our posture toward him when we pray. Are we seeing him for who he really is, or is he just a buddy on the side? That's the challenge. In verse 25, Jesus says to his disciples that he's speaking to them in figures of speech, and that eventually he'll tell them plainly. What he's actually referring to here is actually the coming of the Holy Spirit. So earlier in verse 16, he tells them, hey, I'm leaving, but it's better that I leave so the helper might come. He's like, the Holy Spirit is going to come to you, and that's going to be better. So I quoted earlier Matthew 7, 11. Well, there's a a parallel scripture in uh, Luke 11, 13, and here's what it says. It adds something to that. He says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That's the good news that Jesus is delivering to his disciples. He's explaining that, hey, right now, he's trying to make it simple for him, right? He's like, I'm going to give you figures of speech so that you can understand this as simple as possible. He's trying to define perfunctory for them. Um, but, 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 But later on, they will understand. Like after the cross, after he has finished his work, they're going to get the Holy Spirit. He's going to reveal everything to them. They're going to be able to see Jesus for who he really is. They're going to be able to see the Father for who he really is because Jesus has repurposed their sorrow into joy. And that's found in himself. And so what he's saying here is that God hears you. And not only does he hear you, but he's with you always. He always hears us. He's always with us. It's a beautiful gift that he's given us. That's such good news, right? The idea isn't simply to get answers from God by prayer. But prayer is to give us a oneness with God. We get to have intimacy with him, a deeply rooted intimacy and communion with the God of the universe. Church, we need to take advantage of this. We need to take advantage of of the good news that Jesus is offering us here in prayer, that we get to come to God and regularly practice communion, intimacy, uh, conversation with the God of the universe, the Father who loves you. And so my second point is the practice of prayer. My third point is the perspective of peace. We're going to pick it up in verse 28. Nope, 29. His disciples said, Ah, oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered to them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. 
for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So these, are, these right here are Jesus' last words in this conversation. So he started out at the end of chapter 13, and, he, and he's making his way here, and, and the disciples just got excited, right? They were like, oh, now we get it. We know exactly what you're saying, and they did a little bit. They actually finally realized that after three and a half years that Jesus really was God. Like, that's, that's what they figured out. But what they didn't understand is what was going to transpire over the next 24 hours. And Jesus actually leans in and says, hey, you don't fully understand this, because in a moment, you guys are going to scatter. In, in verse 32, he, he says that all of them will be scattered, and they'll be in their homes. They'll be afraid. They'll be hiding. But here's what he gives them as his last words in verse 33. It is basically a summary of the purpose of this whole thing, a summary of the conversation. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He gives them the perspective that gives them peace. The perspective that is the fact that he has overcome the world, which, mind you, that's an interesting statement, right? Jesus hasn't died yet. He hasn't gone on the cross yet. He hasn't resurrected yet. And yet he speaks in the present tense. I have overcome the world. It's a strange thing for him to say. So what Jesus is showing here is his sovereign authority over all things. In verse 23 earlier, he says this phrase, truly, truly. And he actually says it often throughout the book of John in the first place. He just says, truly, truly. And the words truly, truly, if you look it up in the Greek, what it means for us is amen and amen. And so in Jesus' time, here's what would happen, is they would have guest speakers come into the temple to speak, and the elders would sit to the side, and and the speaker would finish expounding the word of God or or giving them a message, and then they would go sit down. And when they sit down, the whole congregation would look to the elders and, and, and be waiting to hear the elders say, amen, amen, or truly, truly. And what that was is was the elders were signing on to say, what was just stated is true. I mean, we, we kind of do some of that even here where at, during our announcements, we kind of recap and rephrase what the sermon is, but that's what the elders of their day did. They were in charge of the authority of God's word, the authority to say this is what is true and this is what is, isn't true. So when Jesus bursts in, he's basically saying, hey, before you try to ascribe to what I say, before you try to validate me and what I'm saying, hold up, I don't need it. I validate myself. I stand on my own. I am the authority of what is true. So just lay back, relax, and just listen, okay? That's what Jesus is saying to these guys. He is the utter authority to what is true. And to have peace, we have to have the perspective that gives us peace, which comes from the person of peace, Jesus. He's pointing the disciples and us to that perspective. It's the fact that he is the authority to to give that peace. He is the authority that would say, this is so, so true that you can find peace in me. When when life has its inevitable crashes and burns and ebbs and flows that are outside of our control, which is always, and we want God's peace, what he's saying here is, man, the way you get that peace is, is through me because I have overcome the world. I have control over everything. I got it. But what did he mean by overcoming? So, so when he says overcoming, he primarily means the end game, right? Like he, he's talking about what's going to be the outcome. Jesus says, when I overcome the world, I already know what's going to happen. 
I've finished the work in my mind, in my heart. It's done. It's accomplished. I'm the victor. I'm telling you right now, because I have the authority to tell you exactly what's true, truly, truly, I'm telling you it's going to happen. The victory is won. The peace is given. He's defeated death. He's promised that he's going to come back, and he assures us that our sorrow will be repurposed for joy. That's the perspective he's pleading for them to see. That's the perspective that he's pleading with us to see. That yes, in front of everything that we're going through, all of the things that are broken and falling apart, Jesus says, my, the eternal hope that I'm offering you will not disappoint you. And Jesus is giving us just that today. He's giving us the answer that, that says, look to him for life and for joy and peace in the midst of all of our sorrow because he takes it and he repurposes it for his glory, his honor, but and also for his, our joy. So I want to make this see, I want to make this practical for us this morning. So what does that even look like? Jesus says our sorrow will be transformed into joy when we look to his provision of joy through the sorrowful cross. So this means we don't have to act like everything's okay. We don't have to act like everything's normal. We can actually come and admit, "Hey, I'm messy. I'm broken. This hurts. I'm not happy with the circumstances right now." But we don't have to allow our circumstances to be defined by, our, by, by reality. It, has, it doesn't have to be defined by, our joy doesn't have to be defined by our reality. It means that our sorrow, it might come, but we don't get to wallow in it. In fact, we get to turn to where our joy is actually found, and that's in Jesus. He's calling us not to wallow in it, but to lean into him instead. Don't allow the circumstances to define what your joy is. And so you have to ask the question, though, when I say lean in, what do I mean, right? What does it mean to lean in? Well, simply, it's to pray. Now, I'm not saying pray harder. No, I'm saying pray more intimately, more authentically. We get to talk to the Father God. He's not some, some slot machine that we put quarters in or some vending machine to get what we want. No, he's a father. He's a, a loving, deep, compassionate father who wants to hear from you. And he wants to hear everything. He doesn't just want to hear the things that you have well put together. He wants to hear the messy, the everything of your heart, the deepest roots and pains of your heart. He is here listening. You can be transparent with him. If you can't be honest with him, who are you going to be honest with anyway? No one. We are freed to have sorrow, but not to just sit in it. We can trust that and know what is true, even when our feelings don't say the same thing. In our trials, we can have perspective that gives peace. We've been talking for the last couple of weeks about soap, right? So it, it's just a, a simple way for us to understand what God is saying through his word. It's scripture, observation, application, and prayer. And so if we want perspective, if we want perspective to see the peace that God offers, well, we have to meet with God. You can't know what God thinks if you don't see what God has to say. We see what his promises are. So not only do we come to God with our pleas, with our asks for help, with asking for wisdom and guidance, but we, we wait and we see in his word what he has to say about it. What are his responses to those things? That's how we get his perspective for peace. In the human experience, listen to this, in the human experience, and especially in the Christian experience, you must expect sorrow and tribulation. But the good news is that Jesus has taken the ultimate sorrow of our sin and death and turned it into joy by repurposing it for salvation. Every sorrow can be repurposed for joy in seeing and being in awe of our loving, caring, 
Savior Jesus. Amen.